Welcome to your online coffee break, where we discuss bite-sized topics that inspire, educate, and entertain. Here's your host, a software innovator, award-winning marketer, and astronomy and space buff, Chuck Fields. Hello, thanks for joining us today for your online coffee break. Today, I'd like to welcome to our show my special guest, Dr. Joshua Fisher. Dr. Fisher is a scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, as well as the science lead for EcoStress, a mission designed to study the Earth's climate. I was fortunate to first meet Dr. Fisher recently at Cape Canaveral to witness the launch of EcoStress aboard the SpaceX CRS-15 resupply mission to the International Space Station. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Fisher. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Now, Dr. Fisher, I believe EcoStress stands for Ecosystem Spaceborne Thermal Radiometer Experiment on Space Station. Very nice. <laughs> I, you, you, I, you definitely get a cookie for that one. I, I love these acronyms. Did you help come up with that? Uh, yeah. So things that were really good at NASA, at NASA are coming up with really convoluted acronyms mm-hmm. and cool visuals. So yeah. <laughs> That's one part of it. Well, I love it. Now, in a nutshell, I believe it's designed, the mission is designed to measure the temperature of plants to better understand how much water plants need and how they respond to stress. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, exactly. So um, so the instrument itself is, uh, it was just launched to the International Space Station, uh, of which you saw. Great launch. Um, <laughs> it was a really amazing launch. Yes, and it um, it's attached to the outside of the space station, looks back at Earth. And it's a thermal radiometer, which means that it measures the temperature mm-hmm. of the surface of the Earth. Um, and so you can use that to look at fire, you know, hot things or volcanoes. Uh, what we're particularly focused on in this mission is the temperature of plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, because the instrument uh, is um, so good and so accurate and precise, we can get little subtle differences between plants um, in terms of the temperature which is related to how much water they have. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, if they have enough water, they're cycling water through their leaves, and the water cools themselves down. If they don't have enough water, then the plants will heat up. Um, very much the same way sweat cools us down. If you're out there running and you're, you're hydrated, the sweat will cool you down. If you don't have enough water and you're not sweating, you'll actually heat up, and that's actually quite bad for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also bad for the plants as well. And so we're interested in heat stress, water stress, water use, um, and really as uh, there are more droughts, as temperatures are rising, we want to know which plants are going to die first, which are more efficient with their water and which aren't, both in uh, natural ecosystems like forests, which species are uh, more vulnerable when there's a drought uh, to, uh, to death, to fire, um, as well as our managed ecosystems in agriculture, which... Uh, which um, which crops use more water than others, or even within a type of crop, which variety of crop? Like, let's say you're farming lettuce, and you've got 11 different varieties of lettuce to choose from, um, and you want to know, um, you know, which, which which one uses more or less water because you're trying to balance your budget and conserve water, or maybe there's not as much water to go around. Mm-hmm. And so you also want to know within a crop which crop uh, variety uses uh, water and how much. So We've got a lot of different interesting uses when it comes to plants and water uh, related to eco-stress. See, I think that's fantastic. Now, I love the analogy I believe you used is you said, we know that doctors learn a lot about their patient's health by taking their temperature. And I understand the same type of diagnosis can occur by studying the temperature of plants. And 
you had a neat visual down there where you, you talked about how you can actually uh, detect a plant is dying before we could visually see it. You know, we used to, down here, we look at a plant, oh, the leaves are turning brown. Well, Ecostress, I believe, can actually detect, hey, they're about to turn brown, more or less. Is that how that works? Exactly, right. So I actually have the thermal camera over here. but Oh, excellent. So if, if you imagine two plants side by side, mm -hmm. and they, they're the same plant, and you water one and not the other, they still look the same for a while until the one without water starts to wilt and drop its leaves and die. But we can see that lack of water before it wilts and, stre and stresses and dies. We can see it heat up uh, because it doesn't have that water. And so on our camera, we'll see a cool plant and a hot plant. But to your eyes, you'll see just two green plants. And so we, we can see the unseen. We can see that heat stress, that water stress before the plant dies. Huh. And yeah, if you're going to your doctor, you absolutely want your doctor to say, hey, I see something's, uh, you know, the matter with you before you die, right? So <laughs> that is a good point there. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, so you can detect sort of potential droughts then with EcoStress. Oh, absolutely, right. So let's say we don't have a, you know, we have less rainfall than normal. Mm -hmm. Does that mean your plants are going to die? Not necessarily. If you have less evaporation out of the soil, then you, you're, you're watering your soil. Your soil moisture actually might still be relatively sufficient for the plants. And again, it also depends how much individual plants need. Uh, so um, we can actually detect the drought, the, the drought stress on plants, um, which is different than just a rainfall, you know, a, a decline in rainfall, a rainfall anomaly. We can actually see the rainfall relative to the atmospheric pool of water away from the landscape. Um, and that is actually what plants are responding to. Yes, they need water, but if there's water in the soil, then they're kind of okay. Um, also, temperature. We also uh, often think of heat waves, uh, which we just had a, a massive one uh, in Southern California right. uh, this weekend. And we think of temperature as, as very problematic to plants. But again, if they have enough water, they're able to kind of cool themselves down. So just rainfall uh, anomalies, what we call rainfall declines or temperature declines, isn't necessarily sufficient to say it's a drought in the way that plants are going to see it. Mm -hmm. We actually need to see how much water is being used and how much is being pulled out of the, by the atmosphere. Dry air, um, radiation from the sun, temperature, those all serve to pull water out of the atmosphere. Like if you're washing your hands in, in you know public bathroom and you run it down under the uh, hot kind of fan yes. that's evaporating water from your hands, the atmosphere does the same to plants. That hot, dry atmosphere will suck that water off the plants, um, and they will. That that's that's what causes them to undergo stress and eventual changes in in, in death. Huh. Now I understand that there's something unique about the species' orbit that will aid ecostress in its measurements. What what is so unique about that? Yeah. So we're going up on the International Space Station, which is really interesting. Um, we we haven't heard a lot about Earth observing missions on the space station. Yes, there's a lot of uh, work on the space station in terms of what the astronauts are doing and the experiments, but actually looking back at Earth, um, they have a really nice vantage point that we don't get from other types of uh, satellites. Mm -hmm. So most of our satellites kind of fly over us, uh, over the poles at the same time, um, over our heads every time. It'd be like 10.30 every time in the morning. Mm -hmm. So those are pretty good, except that we're interested in how plants are responding over the course of the day. 
Um, so if there's water stress or if there is some sort of afternoon heat or something uh, that goes on in the day, some plants will shut down in the afternoon. Other plants won't. And this kind of depends on their evolutionary history. And we know this from individual studies in our backyards and lab experiments and things like that. But we don't know where this is happening globally. Um, so that is something that we'll be able to find out from EcoStress is where where and when are plants shutting down over the course of the day, uh, which we don't know. Now, there are other, uh, are other satellites called geostationary satellites. Yes. Those will, those will be over our head all the time, mm-hmm. measuring you know, constantly. Uh, they don't have necessarily global coverage, but at least for a certain area, they'll, they'll get that daily cycle. But because of their orbit, their pixel size tends to be very coarse. Hmm. And so if you've got some plants shutting down in the afternoon and other plants not shutting down in the afternoon within the same pixel, then uh, you won't be able to see that. It just looks like one number. And so the space station allows us to sample over the day at very fine spatial resolutions at uh, 70 meter pixel size, which about 230 feet on a side. So um, we can see kind of a a big backyard or a very small plot on a farm. So really get that detail or in 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 a forest, you know, if there's some species in one area and other types of tree species in another, we'll be able to get that kind of fine mosaic over the landscape. See, and that's fantastic, just how sensitive it is. Now, you mentioned this earlier, how it can see more than just how plants respond to heat and water. It can also detect other phenomena, I believe, like fires, volcanoes, even urban heat. Can you tell us more about those types of events? Yeah, so, I mean, it's because we're a temperature measurement. So, we can, so like fires, you know, obviously it's super hot. Uh, we'll be able to pick that up. But with fires, you really want to know right away. You don't want to be like, oh, okay, um, let's wait another week before the next pass. You also want to get those small fires before they become big fires. Yes. So you, for fires, you, this, um, our frequent cadence of eco stress and our fine pixel size will be beneficial to detecting fires in terms of those characteristics. In terms of volcanoes, also, you know, hot things. Um, and also there's these pre- precursors to volcanic eruptions before it's lava everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's SO2 that comes out and that can be hot and uh, we can pick that up in, uh, in our thermal measurements as well. And then for urban heat, same thing, uh, as as our buildings absorb that heat and get hot, you know, the, that black asphalt that just is scorching in the day, right. but then you walk over at night and it's still kind of re-rating that, that heat that it absorbed uh, in the daytime, we can pick that up because we'll be flying over at night as well. So we'll be able to pick up those nighttime measurements. And again, because of our spatial resolution, down to those down to those neighborhood levels where we can say, you know, downtown is getting hotter because of all that concrete and, um, you know, the golf course or whatever is staying cooler because they're watering it a lot. Um, so we can pick up those types of uh, aspects in terms of urban settings as well. Wow, that's fascinating. You literally are saving the planet <laughs> using EcoStress. Now, I believe EcoStress has a one-year prime mission. When do you start getting data back? And then what happens after the one year? So we launched on a SpaceX rocket, uh, Elon Musk, SpaceX. And SpaceX has a contract to resupply the space station with food, other experiments, and things like that. Right. And so we went on the SpaceX rocket, basically hitched a ride, you know, on, on the SpaceX rocket. And on the rocket, the, the there's the Dragon payload. And so they launched this thing up, which we saw beautifully. Yes. And then the Dragon basically has to rendezvous with the space station. And the space station's going thousands of miles per hour orbiting around the Earth, and the dragon kind of has to keep up without crashing into it. And they're basically doing this dance around the Earth, 
for many days before it gets close enough that the that it docks to the space station. So it docked to the space station a few days after the launch. Mm-hmm. So then the Canadian robotic arm on the space station went into the Dragon payload, connected with the EcoStress instrument, and took it out and brought it over to the Japanese experimental module on exposed facility on the, on the space station, JEMIF. And the Japanese have a robotic arm that connected with us as well. So a little handoff, huh. kind of like a, you know, like a, a running back getting it from the quarterback. <laughs> and then, except, you know, with fewer fumbles, hopefully. Yes. And, and, uh, and then that attached it to the outside of the Japanese module and plugged it in kind of like, um, kind of like a thumb drive would plug into your USB port. So there's these specific dimensions that these instruments have to d- be designed to, to plug directly into the outside of the space station. You can't just make anything up uh, sure. out there. So, so that occurred. And then, and that occurred very slowly, you know, they don't want to mess anything up. Right. So it was kind of like watching grass grow in a way. It was just <laughs> slowly, but it was very exciting as well. And then they turned it on very slowly. So the, it, it went power on and then, because it's this thermal instrument and temperature is really important to it, mm-hmm. one of the important things is that it has to cool down really cold before you can actually start collecting data. So sense. it has to cool down to like 60 or 65 Kelvin, which is like, wow. um, it's it's just very, very cold. Yes. <laughs> um, so, But that takes a while because we were kind of hot already. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. basically we're cycling heat out in this ther- this cryo-cool cooler thermal loop around the space station, mm-hmm. just getting rid of heat and cooling down and then... Once that happens, we start collecting it. So I think sometime this week um, or next week, we'll probably have our we'll have something to show. Um, so stay that's tuned. Ex- that's exciting. That's exciting. And then the the prime year is just one year long. So yeah. So our original contract with NASA is to be able to answer our scientific objectives in one year, mm-hmm. and so that is to figure out which plants are more efficient with their water. That's objective one: mm-hmm. the water use efficiency. We want to be able to look at that afternoon shutdown, the daily cycle, what we call the diurnal cycle, um, all over the world. That's objective number two. And we want to see if we can improve drought estimation in agricultural settings. Wow. And that's um, working with our, our partners from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And that's objective number three. And so we have to achieve that in one year. But if, we, if we're able to achieve that, the instrument's still working, uh, fine. Then um, you know, then we renegotiate our contract with uh, NASA to stay on longer. Wow, that's fantastic! I can't wait to hear how that goes. Yeah, so hopefully we can just stay on as long as the thing's working, and hopefully it works a long time. So wow! Now let's geek out for a second. Uh, when I met you at Kennedy Space Center, you briefly mentioned the programming involved in EcoStress. Now I'm a programmer. Uh, several of our listeners are too. Can you elaborate a little bit? Tell us a little bit more about the programming. Yeah, I mean, so there's. There's a lot of engineering, you know, as you can imagine, to build this thing. But there's also a lot of software uh, that's required, not only to command the instrument and and deal with the data downlinks, but also to translate the light measurements into plant water use and temperature and drought. And so that's the side I work on more on the science side and as the science lead of EcoStress is to be able to translate those measurements into uh, meaningful data that scientists can use to understand the planet. And so usually what happens is that the scientists are not really well trained in computer programming. We, we code because it's, it's a means to get something done, but we're not elegant programmers and we usually code in 
you know, it depends on the generation, on your generation. So sure. like my generation was like a MATLAB generation. So we did a lot in MATLAB. A lot of people do stuff in IDEA. Although now the younger generation is doing a lot more in Python. So I had a lot of code that I had written in MATLAB. It was very clunky, not very optimized or efficient. And then we translated that into Python, um, which is a little bit more efficient, faster. You can do more uh, with it. Um, and that was just to run a lot of these test cases using simulated data, make sure everything's working well. But then into the actual mission operations on our servers, um, that gets translated into C++, a compiled language, to be able to run things you know, faster, more efficiently. Um, because now we're processing processing a tremendous amount of data and every day right it's not just i'm a scientist i want to go in and analyze a year of data you know for this one area and now we got to do everything fast and efficiently so that code goes into larger software architectures that link up with the operational aspects in terms of cron job type things and getting ancillary data sets and as well as carrying metadata and quality flags through and and um, tracking uh, any version changes in our code and uh, eventually getting it out to the public in, in a way that's traceable if we've done anything on the way or if there were any bugs or anything that we, we figured found out about uh, that we, you know, we cleaned up just so the users know um, what to expect in their data. So that's kind of a top-level view of the coding without getting into much detail, but it's thousands upon thousands of lines of code. Oh, I'm sure it is. Well, I find that fascinating, and I appreciate you sharing that with me. Now, what else do you think the general public should know about EcoStress and our environment? We've got some fact sheets. We've got a website, for one, uh, in which you can get all sorts of cool images and, and, and videos and fact sheets and things like that. I, I think that website is ecostress.jpl.nasa.gov. Is that correct? That's, that's right, okay. yeah. Excellent. Uh-huh. Well, I'll definitely put that in the show notes for our listeners so they can go there. And Yeah, I mean, it's we're really excited about it. We're also able to do this relatively cheaply relative to other NASA missions, but mm-hmm. in part it's because we had already been developing the instrument at JPL, uh, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, in anticipation of doing one of these missions. So we had a lot built already. But it was also one of the fastest missions to get up to space. We were selected by NASA headquarters in, I think, 2014, um, and it's 2018 now. So to get up to space in four years is kind of unheard of. Really? Uh, with NASA missions. Usually it takes like a decade wow. to space. And we were able to do it pretty cheaply. But also because a lot of things were already paid for, like the SpaceX rocket cargo resupply, we didn't have to pay for on the mission side. Mm-hmm. That was already paid for on the space station side. And, of course, we didn't have to pay for the space station. That was already built. So there were things that made our mission costs on EcoStress a lot cheaper uh, then if we had to pay for our own ride to space, pay for a satellite to be built. Oh, so we were average things that were already in place, which is, I think, what the American uh, public and, and um, Congress is looking for um, in terms of being able to be more efficient with our resources and, and, and leverage the investment that we've made as Americans into our assets um, and, to, and to feed back to society and to be able to help uh, us manage our, our food and water natural ecosystems and, and then continue to understand our planet and advance technology and have extended uses uh, in, in, terms, in terms of other applications. I know that you have a lot of uh, listeners in Indiana because you're based out of Indiana and I do a lot of work in Indiana as well even though I'm based in California. Oh really? I have a, a project in, uh, in, in Bloomington with some, with, with some uh, collaborators out there so I get out to Bloomington now and then uh, and, and, I, and I love it. I, I absolutely look forward to 
just being immersed in, in the ecosystems of Indiana. Um, and we're looking at, there's an interesting gradient of forest in Indiana where um, some trees have this below ground symbiosis with fungi, where the fungi go out and like get nutrients for the trees. And so there's two types of fungi and some, and, and the trees will be associated with one or the other. And in Indiana, there's this gradient of the two fungi and trees across. So we're kind of studying the nutrient dynamics of forest in Indiana, and that's uh, that's been pretty great. Well, that's fantastic to hear. I'd, lo- I'd love to love to see you next time you're in the Indiana uh, area. We're certainly yeah, not too sure. far from Bloomington. Uh, Dr. Fisher, I think EcoStress is wonderful. I want to congratulate you and your team for putting together such an awesome mission. I wish you the best of luck as the data comes in, and really appreciate you taking time on your schedule to join us today. Thank you so much. Sure, anytime, and hopefully uh, you, you, you in, in, in podcast world will find it interesting as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Online Coffee Break. Wow, EcoStress is such an important and amazing mission for us. To imagine that we're going to space to better understand just the climate here on Earth. And uh, I think these measurements are just going to be wonderfully impactful for uh, just our future. They can help us in so many ways. And it's uh, people like Dr. Fisher and, and his team that are making it happen. And I just want to thank him for joining us today. I want to thank you, our listeners, for uh, tuning in today. If you'd like to uh, find out more about EcoStress, you can again visit their website at ecostress.jpl.nasa.gov. I want to thank you for listening today for your online coffee break. If you'd like to comment on today's topic, visit us at onlinecoffeebreak.com or on facebook.com forward slash online coffee break. You can also leave us a comment by calling us at 317-862-4700. We may even play it on the air. You can also follow us at instagram.com forward slash online coffee break. Be sure to rate us or uh, share this episode with your friends. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. God bless. <laughs>